You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 12. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen. You can find my website at conversationsinspeech.com. Well, what can I say? It's been a very busy fall, and some of you have been wondering why I haven't posted anything in a while. Well, I work in a school, and as most of you school SLP, school-based SLPs know, September, October could be very hectic times of the year. Don't worry, I have more episodes on the way. There's always going to be more content. So I appreciate those of you who have been uh, emailing me wondering when the next episode is coming. Well, here it is right now today, episode 12. Let's talk about that. Today we're going to talk about childhood apraxia of speech, CAS. So apologies to those of you waiting for an adult-themed podcast, not that kind of adult-themed Uh, That will be coming. Uh, I have some ideas in the works there. But anyway, today's show features Dr. Kathy Jakelski. Now, Dr. Jakelski came to me, her name, by way of previous guest, Dr. Gregory Loff. Um, And Dr. Jakelski is a professor at Augustana College. That's in the uh, Quad Cities area in Illinois. And she is an expert in the field of apraxia speech. And to be, let's be technical here. She is the Florence C. and Dr. Johnny Wurtz Professor in Liberal Arts and Sciences at Augustana. Uh, and she's just been involved in apraxia research and as a clinician for, let's just say, for a very long time. Let's see. I know for over 25 years. I won't give her the exact number of years, but she can tell you, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, Dr. Chikelsky. Uh, lectures widely in the subject of CIS, and she also happens to sit on the professional advisory board for CASANA, which stands for the Childhood Apraxia of Speech Association of North America. That's a mouthful there. And so uh, we have a wide-ranging uh, discussion about apraxia of speech, and just to remind all of you, uh, again, just about the format of the show, we can go back and forth. It's not necessarily of uh, here's what apraxia of speech is, and here's uh, treatment and all that. Um, I'm hoping actually to have Dr. Jakelski on for a, another episode at some time in the future to talk more about treatment, but we just kind of jump back and forth. And again, the, the questions that I asked are the questions that I've always wanted to um, get answered about uh, a field of apraxia of speech, about the study. And they're the kind of questions that I would probably uh, have at uh, any number of presentations on the subject. So without further ado, let's jump into that conversation. And thanks for listening. Here it is. Um, yeah, you know, I loved audio and broadcasting and all that stuff, but I had no idea really what I wanted to do, you know, with all this stuff. So I came full, yeah. So I came to a speech and never looked back. Yeah, good, good. Well, we're glad you're in the field. Well, thank you. All right. <laughs> so I wish the camera was going. My cat sitting on my lap, just staring at the <laughs> iPad. <laughs> <laughs> what is she talking to? She's like, what is? It? She's talking to me. She thinks no, no. She's a cat. She thinks I'm talking to her. Ah, yeah. So. Giving her loving. All right. So let's jump into apraxia. Yeah. I have a lot of questions. Um, Okay. I'll try to give you some answers. All right. So we'll we'll do the best we can. So I want to start. I want to start a nice little story first. Okay. 
And I think I emailed you, I alluded to this. And the story is that about 10 years ago, I had, I was working full-time private practice. I had a kid on my caseload who, as it turns out, had apraxia of speech. And he had gone up when he sort of had a provisional diagnosis. He went up to the Mayo Clinic to see Dr. Edie Strand. Yes. And, you know, we're in the Chicago area, so they made a nice little trek up there. They were there for, I don't know, two, three days, maybe, something like that. And, in fact, you know, had a diagnosis of apraxia. I then talked to her on the phone just about, just to, uh, you know, talk shop and talk about therapy approaches and whatnot. And I said to her at the time, and I was still a relatively younger clinician. I'd been out about five years. And I said, you know, it's interesting. There seems to be all of these cases of apraxia right now. and I'm just not seeing all these cases. <laughs> so I said, you know, am I just, am I underdiagnosing or what? And she said to me, and this is something that was quoted to you as well on a, a story, I think on the Augustana site, uh, someone wrote about you. And she said that for about every thousand kids diagnosed with apraxia of speech, one probably has it. And looking back over 16 years now in the field, I can honestly say that I can probably count on one hand the number of kids that I've worked with who I felt has had apraxia of speech as a primary diagnosis. And I'm not talking about the kids I see with autism who we all label as a secondary diagnosis. They're, oh, they're apraxic. But I'm just talking about the kids that, you know, the, the classic case. And this, of course, opens a whole idea about what is apraxia and incidence. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. Well, Hopefully I'll, um, you'll follow my weaving in and out as you were talking several things um, I was thinking about. One is that CAS, childhood apraxia of speech, CAS, is, has been found to be overdiagnosed. Now, we don't have the best studies. We don't have a lot of studies. Um, but I think kind of maybe a number that we might be able to go with Oh, it's hard to say right now because not a recent study hasn't been done, but I would say probably around 25% of children who have been diagnosed with CAS actually have what many of us who study CAS would call CAS. So yes, um, misdiagnosed frequently and overdiagnosed. Now, I would say the best numbers that we have for the population prevalence for CAS is about 0.1 to 0.2%. So one to two children out of every thousand. Mm. So when you think about your caseload over the past X number of years and how many children you've seen, then I bet that number, Jeff, would come out to around one to two per thousand, you know, per thousand that you've seen. So if you've seen approximately a thousand children, maybe only one to two have mm. had apraxia. Now, that's in the general population. And because we're talking about a motor speech disorder that's neurological in nature, if you have another neurological um, condition, then, you know, or disorder, then your likelihood, it, the prevalence is going to be increased in those different populations. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Okay. So if you work with children with intellectual disability, then you're likely to see more than one to two out of every thousand, right? Right. So in the general in the general population. Now, another thing that makes me think about is when you I forget the term you use now. I think you said just 
kind of regular CAS. Well, you know, we would call that idiopathic CAS probably in that there's an unknown cause and the primary diagnosis is CAS. Now, there's also CAS in the context of another disorder, right? And and it may be that it's a secondary, um, what we might call a secondary disorder, right? Right. But I think it's really important in what we want to do and uh, in our research and in, even as speech-language pathologists working clinically is to talk about the context in which you're seeing CAS. So being more specific. So is it CAS in a child in the context of another neurogenetic problem? So something like a uh, chromosomal translocation or a gene deletion or a specific gene that you know has been mutated. So that context, another context would be if you're talking about CAS in a child with another or with a neurodevelopmental disorder. So um, a child on the autism spectrum, a child with Down syndrome, right? So that would constitute this neurodevelopmental group. So those are those make up the bulk of the cases versus idiopathic. Well, that's a good, I mean, yeah, if you're looking at pure numbers, mm-hmm. I think yes, yes. Um, but but if you're not working in a population such as that, and you're working in, say, a public school where you've got the general population of children, then you're going to see a lot, you know, then you'll see children with idiopathic CAS as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then the the fourth category, I guess, the fourth context that you can see CAS in would be the neurological one. And that's when you would have a child who would have um, a neurological event, like an acquired brain injury. And in that case, and that's what's different in the term, part of the reason why we moved to the term childhood apraxia speech instead of the other terms that previously had been used. Because this, this term, childhood apraxia speech, we have meaning that it will include children with developmental approach, so, you know, congenital, present since birth or since, you know, the production of speech, or it could be a child who has an acquired neurological disorder, you know, under the age of, say, nine years. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, that brings up a good point. One of my professors in grad school used to uh, really despise the term apraxia. She used to use the term dyspraxia for Yes. That very reason, because yeah. most of the cases were not kids who had lost, but just simply kids who uh, had those developmental issues. Right. And mm. and when you think about that, the prefix of a versus dis, uh, you know, meaning without the ability to motor plan speech or, you know, without the ability, you know, for of praxis, then it's a rare child who has no ability to phonate. Now, there's some disorders when you indeed see something that severe, but they're very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was going to say, it, this brings up another, just the story I told you in the beginning. I, I'm going to say this in the kindest way possible, but I've always find it found it a little, you see people out there who they say, you know, they, I'm an apraxia specialist. And that's where I always get a little apraxia specialist. I'm like, you know, to me, someone working at a tertiary care center, an academic medical center, is more likely to see a good number of cases on an annual basis. But for, you know, just going back to the incidents, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I, it's just a little confused there. You know, maybe, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but. 
Well, I, yeah, yeah, I, there is something that I can say about that. And I think that, um, in, in full disclosure, I am a professional advisory board member. I don't receive any financial, um, remuneration, but I do, um, I am, um, an advisory board member for Cassana, the Childhood Apraxia of Speech Association of North America. And one of the roles that I do play for them that I am paid for is I am an instructor in their intensive training institute for CAS. And their goal, their goal in that training institute is to have apraxia experts all around North America, primarily so far Canada and the United States. And those individuals, so what would I, your point is well taken. How do you become an expert if you're in a private practice or you're in a school setting? These are individuals who have served as local and regional experts so that SLPs who may never have seen a child with apraxia have that person to go to as a contact. And that person is known in their area as someone who can help them with the diagnosis because at some point they have practice where they've worked with a high number of children with apraxia, even though in the current time they might not be in such a practice. Yeah, that's a wonderful idea. And yes. And so the idea is to have, Cassana's goal is to have someone in you know, multiple people in every single state. And they're doing a pretty good job of, you know, getting people out there. So it's exciting. These individuals commit themselves to going through the Institute and it's affectionately, I think affectionately dubbed boot camp. So, um, yeah, so they go through the boot camp course and to even be accepted into the boot camp course, which is a pretty rigorous, they receive around 100 applications and accept maybe um, 20 to 24. And it's only been offered three times and it's been offered in um, 2010, 2012, and then this summer, 2014. Um, And um, to be accepted, they have to have attended a lot of continuing education um, events talking about apraxia and learning about apraxia. So in addition to having had a good number of clients that they've already seen. So these are already master clinicians who want a specialty area and they want to be that resource in a state for other SLPs. Yeah, I have to remember to put that as a link at the end of the show so people can find that if they're interested in uh, becoming a local expert. Um, Absolutely, because they they are listed on the website, and it's as um, I forget the exact wording, but it's you know Cassandra recognized as an expert in CAS, and it's Apraxia Kids www.apraxia-kids.org. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty okay. passionate about the work of Cassandra. Oh yeah, they they seem to have been around since the invention of the web, <laughs> as far as I can remember, at least. I have been associated with some other parent-run groups, uh, you know, support groups, and Cassana is the one that has um, outlasted all of them, and it's a phenomenal resource. And for SLPs, there's just no place better to go to get information about apraxia. I know that um, ASHA right now is developing a, a portal site for apraxia, and in fact, it's under review right now. Um, but 
at the present time, that is the place I send everyone to get information. It's a great place for parents too. And I don't have to say any, um, yes, go there, but Mm -hmm. I say, go, go. Um, The information that is posted is vetted by numerous people before it's posted. And um, yeah, it's the best advice out there. Yeah, I I can vouch for it. I've been to it many times since the probably the late 90s. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, it's a really good site. Lots of good information, parents and professionals. So, so yeah, right. I, it helpful. Yeah. Um, so I guess this will be a good point just to go back and talk about diagnosis. And I wanted to know, yeah. um, are, if there's, you know, Asha had their last position statement, I think was 2007. Yep. And I'm wondering, you know, going back from when, for me, apraxia hit uh, home with that client of mine in around 2003-ish, as I learned more about it, what's changed? What stayed the same? Are we still looking at apraxia in terms of clusters of symptoms? Is there a scoring profile? Is what you know? Is it? We're we still looking at the same kinds of diagnostic uh, markers. Yes, we are. There's still not a gold standard for diagnosis. There's not a single test that we can give. That you know, there's not a blood test we can do. Um, it is really based on a cluster of symptoms, and it is considered um, a symptom complex. The symptoms that you look at vary by uh, research group for the most part, and but but they're all related. And I think that a really good way to think about it, until we come up with the gold standard, is to think about it in terms of the segmental system super segmental system. And by the segmental system, I mean taking a speech sample and analyzing it for the consonants, vowels, and word shapes that a child produces, irregardless of the target. So you're just building a list of the consonants, vowels, and word shapes, you know, the combinations, word shapes being the phonotactic structure, the combination and the sequence of consonants and vowels that the child is producing. So if the child says ta for truck, you get a T in initial position, you get the vowel A, and you get the word shape CV. And you build that, you you derive that phonetic inventory. And that, to me, is what tells you the child's building blocks for speech. This is what the child can do. And then the next part is what we typically do as SLPs, and that's looking at the error inventory. So then we analyze the errors. And I think we want to be careful. Many of us were raised under phonological processes and only learned phonological processes as the way to analyze uh, child speech errors. And so I would caution, make certain if you're going to fit things into processes that it's really the way that, that they were intended to be used. So for instance, you know, one of the, you know, a common error pattern in children and, you know, typical and and disordered speech would be velar fronting. So a T for a K. Mm -hmm. Well, if a child substitutes a P for a K, some people will say, well, that's, that's fronting. That's a fronted consonant compared to the velar target. But that's really not what David Stamp found when he followed those children around for his dissertation and found and identified, first identified in the 1970s, these patterns. And so we want to make sure that if we're calling something velar fronting, that it really is what typically developing children did. 
Mm. in getting to adult-like speech. So we want to describe the types of errors that these children are making. And we we need to for apraxia, which makes apraxia fun in terms of analyzing, is that you get to really pay attention to the vowel system. So you're going to analyze the errors for consonants, initial, medial, and final position, of course, and then look at clusters. Because if we think about speech as being maybe arguably the most complex motor tasks that human beings engage in that we do, well, of speech, what's the most complex? And I would assert that clusters, producing clusters, sequences of consonants is the ultimate speech motor task. And so we want to look at clusters really carefully. And then we want to look at vowels. And when we look at vowels, I would really urge speech language pathologists to think about them in terms of monophthongs, diphthongs, and rhotics, and and analyze those vowels in those different categories. Because the motor complexity, we could argue, you know, increases from monophthongs to diphthongs to rhotics. So for monophthongs, right, you're talking about um, a single tongue gesture. So I, Mm -hmm. eh, eh, right? And then diphthongs, of course, being two tongue gestures articulated so quickly that they produce a single vowel, a single syllable. Mm -hmm. And then rhotics or R-colored vowels or post-vocalic R's, um, vowel plus R in the same syllable. So I think we really want to pay attention to that, Mm -hmm. those categories, and then word shape errors. So that's a segmental system. And and what do those errors look like? And then, um, and what building blocks does the child bring to the task of speech? And then the other component that we don't get to really pay attention to because most children don't have problems with it unless they have a motor speech disorder like apraxia is the supersegmental system. And and people call it different things. I call it supersegmental, meaning those things that we do in addition to producing the consonants. So intonation, pitch, rate, stress, loudness, dynamics, mm-hmm. and and. And so when you're looking at a child with apraxia, we really believe, at least for younger children with apraxia who've not had a lot of therapy, what we really believe is that if you have a child who has only segmental errors, then you're probably not looking at apraxia. There should be something in the supersegmental system that's also in deficit. Mm -hmm. Well, I can say that in the handful of cases that I've seen of kids with apraxia, I've Every single case I've seen some prosodic errors or um, mm-hmm. or you know atypical behavior there. So, yeah. And why do you think that is? I mean, have you have you had the opportunity to stop and think about why you think that is? Well, I kind of viewed it as like a compensatory strategy. I mean, you definitely, in some cases, I've seen you know the extraneous arm movements or just body position changes as they're trying to get you know, sounds out. Um, but I I view that again, just going back as a symptom complex. I view that as they're trying to get their, it's almost as if their speech motor system is tied in with other motor systems as well. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. And when I think about, you know, what is loudness? I mean, how do we produce loudness? Well, you know, it's, it's respiratory control. Mm -hmm. And how do we produce intonation and pitch? Well, it's phonatory control and how do we produce rate of speech, right? Well, rate of speech is articulatory control. And so speech is, you know, it's pretty unforgiving in terms of you have to hit your target, you know, your spatial target. You've got to hit it pretty spot on. Otherwise, E isn't E, it's I, 
or yeah. it's something else, right? Mm-hmm. And and not only do you have to hit that spatial target, but you have to hit it in milliseconds and have those things sequenced. So it's hard enough just to produce speech sounds, hitting the exact target, hitting them quickly and co-articulating them. And now you're talking about, in addition to that, having to coordinate the respiratory system for loudness, well, for air supply, period, the phonatory system, not just for voicing, but for fluctuation and to mark stress. And then you've got, you know, so it's a really complex um, production. And, and so if a child has motor speech planning problems, you, you know, I think we should expect to see something in the suprasegmental system having a hard time being planned, just like for segments. So I think it should make sense. And we're talking about, you know, these neuro circuits, right, that are interactive, that are in all these different areas. So we're talking about, you know, um, structures in the cortex and structures in the, you know, subcortex and in the brainstem and in the cerebellum. Um, and then we've got to factor in auditory processing and auditory feedback and it's a really complex um thing that that um humans produce speech so sure um i you know talking about the difficulty in in speech production and the uh prosodic errors and timing and you know one of the things that i wanted to ask in the beginning that i forgot is i saw this in a post recently um at least i think it was recently where someone said or asked the question is there any other type of diagnosis but severe for apraxia? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, that I, I love that. I love the question. Um, when you think about it theoretically, it's a motor speech planning problem, and there should be a continuum from mild to severe. And it took me, I mean, I, you know, I should think about this a moment when. I started working with my first child with apraxia and it was 1984. So I've 1984, right? And I've had, you know, these are individuals who are now in their 30s. And so um, I've had the chance to stay in touch with some of them and follow them as they've matured into adults. And, um, I've learned a lot. It's taken me a long time to get my own head around this idea of a continuum because for uh, many years, I could only see it if it was severe. Mm-hmm. And um, and now I feel much better about, I, I kind of get the, the milder form of apraxia. But yes, it can be a milder form. And I think those milder forms tend to be primarily cases um, of idiopathic CAS where there are there are not other accompanying you know um, associated you know syndromes or disorders. And, do you think? I'm yeah. sorry. Do you think those cases, those milder cases of idiopathic apraxia, tend to go um, underdiagnosed or diagnosed as a just a general speech sound disorder or a phono disorder? I'm just wondering. I just hmm. if your sense was there. Uh, Maybe, maybe because I don't know what a really mild case looks like, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, maybe they are. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I don't um, I don't know. I don't, was I going to say something else? I don't know. If I was going to say something. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but you have, you know, you have these children with apraxia, and oh, as adults, 
Yeah, like as adults. Yeah. And, and um, I think that, you know, so this is what I see. And, and I have said this for 20 years. I see children with apraxia going down one of two paths, ultimately. One path, they mature into adults with absolutely normal speech to the point where even as a speech language pathologist, you wouldn't be able to tell that they ever had any speech sound disorder, mm. let alone apraxia of speech. Another group of these children go on to have, um, to always struggle with good speech production skills. And, and um, although speech tends to be their primary means of com communication, intelligibility remains somewhat poor, if not very poor, in that other population of children. And so I think part of what I pick up on now and what I might call mild or mild to moderate are these children that I, that I believe are going to be going down the path of um, getting to normalize speech in there by their teen years. Well, you know, this brings up something that I've always wondered about apraxia as well. I some, you know, sometimes I, I view a lot of the kids that I've seen over the years with speech sound disorders as having not pure apraxias, but motor motoric aspects to their speech sound disorders. And I've, you know, you talk about the two paths that you've seen adults go down. And, you know, you spoke before about apraxia being seen by many as a symptom complex. And the question, I guess, that I have is, to what extent can we say it's a purely motor uh, disorder versus having that a linguistic uh, uh, aspect to it as well? And could it be that the kids who grew up um, as adults continue to struggle, you know, could there be other you know, other issues when you going through that hierarchy of, or stages of, uh, you know, phonological mapping all the way to the execution of speech, you know, is there a continuum in terms of each individual kid with apraxia as far as the motor versus the language? Yeah, I think there is. I think it's a great point that you make and a great question. Um, this summer I had a boot camper and, um, me and the other two instructors, we have a smaller subset of the larger group, you know, that we mentor so we can work a lot in small groups as well as in the large group. And um, one of my boot campers was just um, a phenomenal thinker and trying to put together things theoretically in her mind. And so what you're bringing up is a theoretical debate, you know, and is it, is anything, you know, is, is any of speech pure motor? Is any of it pure linguistic? And in this, you know, idea that we're talking about something that's bi-directional, right? The motor system influences the linguistic system. The linguistic system um, influences the motor system. And for years, I think in this field, we got caught up in, is it motor? Is it a motor base? Is it a linguistic base? You know, is it Arctic? Is it phonology? And um, and now Asha finally, very recently, right, in what the past five years or so, you know, kind of said, okay, enough. We're going to call it speech sound disorder instead yeah. of logical disorder, right? Instead yeah. of articulation disorder. In, in the apraxia literature, it came out, okay, enough. We're not going to call it, you know, um, verbal dyspraxia. We're not going to call it developmental apraxia because they put you in a very specific camp. So I think in every case, there's this bi-direction, this, this influence of one system on the other. Mm -hmm. Still, though, it comes down to what do you think the primary, what do you think the core problem is? And it really does, the evidence does show us 
at least for someone like me who leans motor <laughs> mm-hmm. to self-disclose, um, it does, um, you know, that evidence does lean towards a motor, you know, a motor aspect as being the core impairment in planning and programming. And some of the really nice, I I believe the really nice evidence for that comes out somewhat in the types of errors that these children make. But even more so, when we look at the only gene that's been identified to date that's been linked to a speech and language disorder causally associated is the FOXP2 gene uh, on chromosome 7. And that gene, when that gene is mutated, um, you know, it it results in, we see it, you know, resulting in apraxia speech. And um, when, you know, when you when these really nice studies have come out looking at the FOXP2 gene in uh, mice and mouse pups, and they've gone in and they've mutated the FOXP2 gene in mice, you know, um, uh, mice pups, then you, um, what happens is those developing um, pups have fewer mouse calls, right? And their, mm-hmm. their calls that, only the mother mouse <laughs> having mm. a hard time with all these uh, plurals. <laughs> Mice mouse. <laughs> all, these, all these mouse calls that are coming out are fewer in number. Yeah. And then the other the other work that's been done, and and so that leads to a motor, right? That and and when you look at because when you think, what do genes do? Well, genes tell cells, you know, they regulate proteins that go you know, that are deposited in different places, right, in the central nervous system. And and so where, you know, where that protein is, is the cells that it's going to help develop. And so if they are deposited in the motor strip, for instance, then you're going to have a motor-based problem. And so I think we've got some good evidence now, you know, and then when we look at songbirds, because when you think about songbirds, there are species of songbirds that when um, when they're developing in ovo, their auditory tracts are are laid, and they're they're learning their species specific songs in ovo. Okay, mm. like human infants, right? We're starting to lay auditory tracts for the language that the language environment, right, of the of the mother. And when you go in, you mutate the FOXP2 genes in some of these songbirds then their songs are disordered. Interesting. And yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. And so I think that gives us good evidence that, at least for me, that you know the core problem is in the motor system, but it certainly impacts the developing phenology. Sure. And then you've got that, you know, that bi-directional influence yeah. one to the other. No, I, th- I think the... Uh... I think they've gone the right direction in uh, clarifying, you know, terms and talking about that bi-direction because I, you know, I, the first course I had ever taken on apraxia, I remember them, the idea was some people were thinking that um, in the past that apraxia was nothing more than a severe phonological disorder. Right. And you just had people going all sorts of different, you know, directions. It had to be one or the other, but, you know. Well, and and some saying that it doesn't exist at all as a separate entity as a diagnosis. Yeah, like and insurance like, companies. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that would be one way. And I'm also thinking of well, and what about speech language pathologists that are out there and professors of speech language pathology? And I guess you know my 
my argument today is how do you explain the FOXP2 gene? I mean, we have this genetic, we have a causal link, you know, from a gene to a speech sound disorder called apraxia, and it's different. Well, there it's also must be a lot of, there must be a number of uh, functional MRI studies these days. And there are some functional MRI studies that are out there mm-hmm. and, um, you know, some functional imaging that's being done as well as static. I mean, it you know, the studies that have been done, like around 60% of children with apraxia who've made it in some of these neuroimaging studies have been found to have normal structures, brain structures. But 40%, you know, we see some differences. We don't always know how to interpret those differences. Um, but what we do have ideas of where we see these differences, at least, you know, in what brain tissue, what structures there are. But in yeah, there's some really exciting functional MRI studies that have been out there. Um, Dr. Barbara Lewis at Case Western has done some of those. Um, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. there's some nice work. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. I appreciate your time. You know, one of the things that, and especially this uh, sparked my interest after talking to Dr. Greg Loff, is some apraxia assessments have you, in in addition to the just pure motor speech, like the Dido cokinetic movements that we have kids do, uh, as part of an assessment, we'll have you look at the non-speech oral motor system and have us look at a kid, whether they can pucker their lips, stick out their tongues voluntarily. And I wanted to ask you, if you felt that looking at motor movements independent of speech had any bearing on treatment or had any bearing on future prognosis, et cetera, what value does it have, uh, if any? Well, you want to think about apraxia in a more general sense. So we've been talking about apraxia of speech, especially the childhood version, right? And you know, we also want to consider we're talking about praxis being the ability to voluntarily plan motor movements. Well, you can have a praxia of the limbs. Um, you can have a praxia, you know, what we call ideational praxia, kind of a praxia of thought, more mm-hmm. or less. We can have oral apraxia and we can have speech apraxia. And so one of the prognostic indicators you know, for, okay, how quickly might a child go through therapy and might the child take the path of having fully resolved speech or not, right? And so one of the things that I like to look at is if there is a praxia in other motor systems, so in the oral system, the non-speech oral system, so things like puckering your lip, you know, moving your tongue from side to side in non-speech movements, And if the child has apraxia, say, of the limbs, of the hands, then my prognosis for apraxia of speech is going to be a little bit poorer. Or at least I will say this child may take longer to get through speech intervention because I'm looking at other apraxia in the body. And so when you when you give these tasks and you have these tasks that are non-speech, I can tell you I have seen children with very severe, and they've been, yeah, I've seen children with very severe CAS who do not have non-speech oral apraxia. And I've seen children with severe non-speech oral apraxia who do not have speech apraxia. So these are, you know, and and I won't repeat 
um, I won't try to even repeat um, some of the great comments and evidence that Dr. Loff presented, but um, we know that there's different brain circuitry. And so um, you test for those things, in my opinion, you want to look for those things because you want to look for, prog- you're, you're thinking about prognosis. And also, if you're an SLP who doesn't have a lot of experience with CAS, which is most of us, then you can, if you see a child with, you know, oral motor apraxia, um, you know, apraxia, you know, of, of the hand, say, of finger movements, then you can feel more secure in your diagnosis of speech apraxia, if that's what you think it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's because a good you point. see these kinds of motor planning problems, but that doesn't mean that you start working on those tasks in speech therapy mm-hmm. because they will not lead to better speech. Right, separate motor paths. Yes. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, the last thing I want to ask you tonight is about uh, treatment, and we talked about you know that not much has changed uh, diagnostically over the last ten years. Um, the general, the gist that I've always got from the experts as far as therapy uh, essentially it was short and frequent and you know you're trying to take advantage of motor learning theory uh has that the same i you know there's a lot of different approaches but they all seem to have that in common incorporating incorporating motor learning motor learning that we want to uh that therapy should be frequent but yet kept in a short uh, increments is that uh, a generally generally accepted premise these days to start out i think you want um shorter sessions more frequent and but then there are times when if we want to build generalization and carryover we better change the way we do therapy and it's going to change for each child you know, with apraxia, and it's going to vary by progress on a particular goal that you have. So some things you're going to do more of a masked kind of practice and others are, excuse me, you're going to want to do something more distributed in nature. You know, some you're going to do blocks of, you're going to say the same word over and over, and that's going to get the child motor skill, but you won't get motor carryover. You won't see that generalization unless you start varying it and putting several targets in. And um, because here's what's different, I think. Here's what these, these principles of motor learning, this is how I personally think about it. So, you know, I was raised academically um, with Van Riper's, um, you know, motor approach. And, um, and, and people think that I'm still somewhat saying the same thing, right, that I haven't moved beyond Van Riper's Um, approach. This is what I would say. That approach was very motor driven, right? Kind Mm -hmm. of drill and kill. What's different about the principles of motor learning is that they're, they're bringing in the idea of cognition and these cognitive hyphen motor skills. And that if we think cognitive, if we get the child to engage cognitively in the task And it's not just drilling on the same thing over and over and over because you get in that set, right, where you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're just doing it over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't carry over very quickly if you have apraxia. It doesn't hurt so much if you're more of a vanilla brand speech, you know, have more of a vanilla brand speech sound disorder. But if you've got a motor speech disorder, it's not going to get you where you need to go. And that is walking out of your, you know, intervention room and 
producing out out in the real world, what you just did in the therapy uh, session. And so this idea of being cognitively engaged and asking the child to think, that's what's different to me. But the primary approaches that are out there now for apraxia, and only three have been empirically tested. So it doesn't give us a lot of formal approaches for treating apraxia, um, but the ones that have been tested, the three that have been tested, and that would be dynamic tactile and temporal cueing, rapid syllable transitions, mm -hmm. and the Nuffield approach. Those three approaches are showing really good treatment effects. I don't know that so, third one. Oh, um, yeah. The, the um, uh, Nuffield yeah. approach comes out of the UK, and it is an approach. I mean, all three of these approaches um, are based in principles of motor learning, but um, this approach NDP3 comes out of the Nuffield Center in the UK, and it's called the Nuffield Center Dyspraxia Program, and it's the third version, thus the three. Mm. And it's a commercially available program, and um, it's widely used in the UK and, and um, in Australia as well. It's a, it's you know, it, it's a little costly, and you start with single sounds, and then you build up. So you really want to look at these three different programs in terms of what you might want to use and why. You might want to use one approach for one child for, for some reason, and then a different one. Um, the rest approach, um, the rapid syllable transition, what they call rest, that program um, was developed in um, Australia, and it's showing really nice effects in therapy. One nice thing about the rest approach, approach is that um, the practice is focused on varied stress patterns. And so it's a systematic way of addressing stress, which is the only approach that we have like that. Oh. And then, of course, you know, we have some other approaches out there, of course, um, you know, visual biofeedback. Um, oh, yeah. I was going to ask you about that one. <laughs> yes. Like ultrasound. Yeah. Would, I saw an article recently about that ultrasound biofeedback. Yeah. Dr. Jonathan Preston's work. Mm -hmm. Really nice study of a few children who are older with CAS. Um, persistent CAS. And um, he got a nice effect. You know, the children, most of the children made some improvement on it, or all of the children actually made some improvement on it, at least a few of the target sounds. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, not all of us have access to ultrasound yet, at least. Mm -hmm. And then there's acoustic spectral biofeedback, right, where you can download some of those freeware programs um, right onto your laptop so you can look at the and and some actually i guess there are some apps out there that do that i tend to use prat um, or another program but yeah we just talked about that actually in the last episode of prat oh uh, yeah. yeah it's it's really powerful there are some other ones i think that are a little maybe user friendly um mm. than that one but um yeah mm -hmm. we haven't we haven't stu no one studied that on children with apraxia but it seems like there's, um, there could be something there. And then yeah. electropalatography, you know, there's been one study. So I mm -hmm. think, you know, there are some new, new approaches out there. Um, prompt is in a, is an approach that, um, a lot of individuals, you know, are trained, a lot of speech language pathologists, you know, are, are trained in that approach, physically restructuring oral muscular phonetic targets. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's been undergoing some study, um, lately and the results are looking good okay so so right now the preliminary evidence with prompt is pretty good for apraxia 
It is. The the one thing, it hasn't been empirically tested yet. Mm. So they're doing some of those really basic studies, which are, are yeah, it's, it's yeah, the, the results are um, quite positive, actually. Um, and I think a lot of people think of prompt as being a, a motor-based tactile cueing system, but it's really a cognitive motor-based mm-hmm. tactile cueing system. I, you know, I think the bottom line is um, I'll be participating in a short course at ASHA this year, and it's on the title is "What's in Your Therapy Toolbox?" What's in your speech therapy toolbox? Something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I will be talking about what's in my CAS toolbox. And um, you know, I think you you really do want to, you because children with apraxia are really a heterogeneous bunch. And research has bared that out. I mean, they are a heterogeneous bunch of children, and you need to have a lot of different tools. And what I really, I guess, maybe what I would make a plug is, please, for speech-language pathologists, go back to your phonetic roots and um, brush up on your phonetic transcription skills and, and be able to think about, you know, phonetics really quickly, be able to go through the monophthongs, diphthongs, and rhotics, be able to do place, manner, and voicing for all of the consonants, understand phonotactic structure, understand how those things develop in typically developing children from about seven months of age onward, uh, and and use, use those early data, you know, those progressions to help build from the bottom up speech targets for children with apraxia. And I think you'll see really powerful results and you can steal bits and pieces from lots of different programs, you know, or approaches that are out there that will take you, take your children far because, you know, if you're looking at a disorder that's motor based, then I think you want to attack it from that motor based and motor sequencing standpoint. I think that's going to, that's what at least the research is showing us so far. Mm-hmm. Boy, I have a, after this talk, I have a lot to uh, go back and, and read up on, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, maybe, right? I mean, yeah, it's great. Do some reading on, you know, some things, but, you know, it is a low incidence disorder. And so maybe one of the things you can do is make sure that you have identified someone in your area that you can call on to help you think about it when you need to. That's a good. I, 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 you know what? I tell you, I'm going to do that next time, because I did, I had a kid about a year ago. I, I felt that he might have had a bit of a practice, and I just really wish I could have called upon somebody. So I think next time I will look on the site and see, you know, my year. I'm sure I live in Chicago, so there's got to be somebody here. Yeah, there are. Um, yes, there. Yeah, there are two people in the Chicago area. I mean, there are more than two people. But yeah, yeah you have a lot of people. I could give you a lot of recommendations. Yeah. Just send me an email. I'll yeah, <laughs> I will I, definitely do that. Yeah, there really, there are some really strong as well. I mean, that I know, and I'm sure there's many more than the ones I know. But um, two boot camp graduates are in the Chicagoland area, and you've got a couple researchers in that area who really think about this a lot, and who would be really willing um, to help you think about it. And then you can learn as you go, right? Yeah. Um, because Especially based on that one kid. Yeah. yeah exactly. So. And and they're all going to be present a little bit differently. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if one thing, if I can go back, I'm trying to think, I think it might've been the first question you asked and you were asking about prevalence mm-hmm. and, and you said something like, and I can't remember, do you remember the term that you used? You didn't use like regular CAS, but, um, um, uh, well, I, well, idiopathic, but I said, uh, you know, I, I, the program I work in, I see kids, a number of kids on the autism spectrum. And so uh, it's yes. a comorbid issue, I think, with them. But I don't, I don't define them necessarily by their apraxia. It's certainly not an over, you know, riding feature. Right, um, and that's that's the piece that I was going to bring up. Um, it was related to your statement of, you know, if you're taking those children out of the equation, right, for prevalence. And I would say this: the prevalence of apraxia in children with autism is quite low. And that's where we're getting all these referrals, right? We're getting these misdiagnoses now of children who are nonverbal and on the autism spectrum disorder or on the autism disorder spectrum. And and they're being labeled, they're nonverbal because they're apraxic. Mm. And we're not seeing that in research, that the reason that those individuals are nonverbal is in most cases not because they're apraxic. It's because they're autistic, and that's part of their autism. Yeah, It's not part of a praxis problem. And so we're seeing a lot of, um, and I can understand why parents might gravitate towards that, but I think as speech, as a label, I think as speech-language pathologists, we have to be really careful about separating those two and understanding if, you know, when and if there is an apraxia component mm-hmm. that's I, yeah. associated. I um, see a lot, a lot of that, that, uh, that comorbid diagnosis. I've, I've seen it a lot. They seem to go together a lot. And I, I'm glad right. you shed light on it because I think it gives me... Uh, and I would say, really take another look at those children and and do a motor speech of you know exam on them and make sure that it's praxis, because in our clinic at Augustana, I mean we've always had. I have a colleague whose area of expertise is in autism, Dr. Allie Haskell, and we see lots and lots of children. We see eighty five families a week um, in our clinic, and. A lot of those children have autism. In I've been there since 1998, and only two of those children with autism have had a co-occurring um, disorder um, diagnosis. You know that I've confirmed of apraxia. Wow. So I mean, and and I'm not the only one. Um, some other researchers have been looking and trying to figure this out and come up with a number. So. You know, I'm not talking from a research standpoint. I'm talking from a clinical practice standpoint. Right. But it's actually quite low. And and I, if I had to guess, uh, knowing just my completely unscientific, I would say my guess would be that there was something to the diagnoses, but that it was probably overdiagnosed. I didn't realize it was that low. I think it's quite low. Yeah. Okay. Food yeah, for thought. I think it's quite low. Yeah. So I would say, I mean, that's what we want to do, right? Um, we just want to really think hard. Because, boy, if you had your druthers, which diagnosis would you want to pick? Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, autism or apraxia? Well, yeah. you know, maybe apraxia. But, mm-hmm. yeah, but I, that's not what we're really seeing when we go in and really test these children. We're not seeing this high incidence of apraxia in this population. You know, that, hey, there's a whole other 
uh, issue that I'd love to bring up. I, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to end right now. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yes, you're welcome. And, I appreciate the invitation. And I, I would love to have you maybe for a part two of this, if we can do some. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much more I want to ask you. <laughs> and you've been you've been such a treasure trove of, of information. I just think that there's a, a lot more ground we could cover. Um, well, maybe. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I love it. Yeah, I'm just going to put that out there right now, and then uh, we'll see how this turns out, and uh, hopefully we can do a part two of this. Okay. Well, okay. thanks, Jeff. I really I appreciate it, and um, I appreciate your work on the podcast. Oh, I, thank you. I I applaud you for um, having an idea of doing something to get information out and actually seeing it through. So yeah, congratulations. And thank you, thank you for that. I mean, so far it's been pretty positive, and uh, I I hope that uh, people hear about it and they they like what they hear, and more people come on the show. Good. I'm um, listening. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening to another edition of the CSP Podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Kathy Jakelski so much for coming on the show. I cut out actually the first few minutes of our conversation. We were a lot of small talk. And one of the things she was saying was that when I first asked her to come on the show, no way was her thought. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, again, this is a new podcast, still new and uh, relatively, she doesn't know who I am. And uh, she thought about it for a moment and then realized that, hey, this is actually a pretty good way to sort of give back to the community at large and hopefully spread some good information about apraxia to the community, not just in uh, North America, but throughout the world. So thank you so much, Dr. Chikowski. I hope you uh, will consider coming on uh, another time and talk about more about apraxia, about treatment especially. Uh, so if you want to uh, leave a comment about the show, go to the website conversationsinspeech.com. You can email me directly at jeff at conversationsinspeech.com. Any ideas for shows, please send them my way. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>